Welcome to the Saltwater Strangers Pacific Series, a product of the Australian Naval Institute. In this series, we talk to academics, strategists and maritime professionals from across the region on the maritime security challenges and opportunities in the Pacific. The Saltwater Strategist Pacific Series is proudly brought to you by BAE Systems. A naval facility in the Solomons would really allow China to complicate the deployment of our submarines before they would get anywhere near any potential theatre of operations in the North Pacific. Dr Anthony Bergen is a senior fellow with the Australian Strategic Policy Institute with an extensive background in national security research. Anthony and I first met during his 20-year tenure as an academic with the Australian Defence Force Academy and it's great to be working with Anthony again. Anthony is a former director of the Australian Defence Studies Centre and is currently an honorary fellow at the Antarctic and Climate Ecosystems Cooperative Research Centre. Anthony's area of expertise includes maritime security, oceans policy, homeland security, disaster resilience, South Pacific and climate security. Anthony, thank you for joining us today for our inaugural Saltwater Strategist podcast. We're honoured to start the series with someone of your calibre. Well, thank you, Jen. And uh, if I'd known that we were going to be chatting again after all these years, I would have given you a high distinction, not just a distinction, for your uh, ADFA assignment. So uh, <laughs> apologies. Oh, thank you. I uh, wish we could revisit those scores. I guess my first question is, I think it's fair to say that following the recent federal election, maritime security in the Pacific seems to be registering as an issue even for the average Australian. Given this is the first of the Saltwater Strategist Limited Pacific series of podcasts, we're keen to start with a broad understanding of the nature of the maritime security challenges facing the Pacific, a topic you have published extensively on. How would you describe the broad range of maritime security challenges in the Pacific? Well, thanks, Ken, and your observation that um, the Pacific and indeed maritime uh, Pacific issues uh, featured in our election um, was, I think, a surprise to everyone um, out of all the issues that um, one would have expected to dominate our politics um, during the campaign. No one, I don't think, would have predicted uh, issues to do with South Pacific uh, security, maritime security, all related, obviously, uh, to the Solomon uh, Island Agreement with China. So you're right uh, in your observation that it, uh, it was an election uh, issue. Look, your question about what are the sort of broad maritime security challenges, I, I guess the first point to make, Jen, is that, you know, while the Pacific Islands themselves are quite small, the ocean areas that they claim jurisdiction to are enormous. You know, the Pacific has something like 30% of, of the uh, exclusive economic zones in the world, and, and they badge themselves now as large ocean states. So, you know, that's why the narratives that um, they're using now about the Blue Pacific and the Blue Pacific continent is, is one that um, they feel resonates and best represents uh, their interests, their, their geographical environment, their resources and, and so forth. So the, the, the maritime security challenges, frankly, dominate the security agenda really, in the Pacific. And I'd go far as to say, Jen, that really all security issues in in the Pacific Islands region are maritime one way or another. 
So I'm not just talking here about maritime state-based threats, you know, military threats and sort of direct defence threats to their sovereignty, but for the Pacific it's more the so-called non-traditional security threats, the non-state security challenges, whether it's be maritime natural hazards, whether it be climate change, whether it be illegal, unreported, unregulated fishing, uh, whether it be marine pollution and so forth. So it's all these um, broader, if you like, small s security issues rather than capital S security issues. I'd also note again that for many of the island countries, the maritime safety issues and, and search and rescues are intimately linked to how they perceive security. So I would also include, you know, search and rescue and maritime safety as part of the broader maritime security agenda in the Pacific. But um, as I say, most security challenges in the Pacific, simply because of the oceanic environment, really are maritime one way or another. Thanks, Anthony. You mentioned the uh, the Blue Pacific, and uh, that's often mentioned when talking about how Pacific Islanders view maritime security in the Pacific. Can you talk to me a little bit about the notion of the Blue Pacific and how central that is to maritime security for the Pacific? On the blue economy, the concept really, you know, is all about ocean development, if I can put it like that. It's essentially focused on maritime industries, whether it's maritime tourism or ports, transport, shipbuilding, offshore fisheries. But it also links up now with a lot of emerging marine technologies like biotechnology or wind or wave, tidal energy, undersea mining and so forth. So the blue economy concept is really around leveraging the ocean and ocean industries for sustainable development, I guess, You know, I think for your listeners, it's very important to understand, we often forget this, I think, that you can't have a blue economy without maritime security. You know, if you're trying to develop maritime assets and infrastructure through a blue economy, then obviously you need to protect those assets. So maritime security agencies are important. Maritime agencies, for example, are providing information about oceanographic data, They're providing information about oceanic conditions. Uh, Maritime security operations are often brought into force after uh, particular environmental accidents and so forth. And, of course, maritime security agencies in the Pacific also, through their own activity, contribute to the the growth of the blue economy. So I guess my point here, Jen, without labouring it, is that there is a link between maritime security and advancing the the blue economy. Now, your other question that sort of nested in there was the the concept of the, you know, blue Pacific. And and now the phrase that the Pacific Islanders use is we are the blue Pacific continent. Now, that goes back, as I say, to this idea that they perceive themselves as large ocean states. But very much invested in that blue Pacific continent idea is this idea that the islands are stewards. There's this stewardship 
dimension of claiming, you know, to look after their broader oceanic environment, not just, by the way, again, within their own national jurisdiction, but also in the broader international waters of the Pacific. Now, I'd argue that that concept can't really be sustained, that stewardship dimension, without external support. And, you know, I think sometimes um, the Pacific Islanders themselves don't really fully recognise that fact that they can't be, if they're going to claim the Blue Pacific Continent, then, of course, that implicitly (laughs) uh, means that they are going to be dependent on others to protect if they need to enforce measures to protect their Blue uh, Pacific continent. So there's a social licence to operate, if you see what I mean, in this concept of the Blue Pacific continent. And one of my colleagues, Richard Herr, who writes a lot on the Pacific, um, you know, he pointed out to me that, you know, the social licence may indeed end up conflicting with uh, Western interests. For example, if the Blue Pacific Continent means that the whole Pacific is going to be nuclear-free, what does that mean, for example, to Western security interests? If, for example, we need for good economic, strategic reasons to mine rare earths on the seabed in the Pacific, then that may conflict with this idea of the islanders having stewardship over their Blue Pacific Continent. But I I guess um, the point that I'm making is, yes, the the concept now of the Blue Pacific is embedded in their strategy. They released it just at the Pacific Island Forum uh, a few weeks ago, the Blue Pacific 2050 strategy. But as I say, there is an element where the Pacific states have to recognise, I think, that um, they can't really enforce their authority over the whole Pacific uh, unless they have, or unless they're going to free ride, if you like, on the international rules-based order that's really sustained by Western security. I find it uh, interesting your comments about the sheer size of the Blue Pacific and that requirement for external support given that size. And one of the things that's been talked about extensively of late is the need for maritime domain awareness in the Pacific. And I note the Quad's 22 announcement on the rollout of the Indo-Pacific Maritime Domain Awareness, IMDA. Anthony, do you have a feel for what shared maritime domain awareness should or could look like in the Pacific, given the breadth of the area we're talking about? Uh, Well, I think the first point to make there, Jen, is that the Pacific is perhaps more advanced in maritime domain awareness. Um, That is simply understanding, you know, what happens at sea and information sharing, uh, fusion, joint analysis and so forth to allow countries to sort of react to incidents and so forth. Look, I think the Pacific is more advanced um, than perhaps other regions, but national capacities uh, in the Pacific are still, I think, fairly weak. And there's not an enormous amount of evidence that, you know, information between maritime security agencies, shipping, maritime safety agencies, uh, marine environmental agencies in the Pacific is, is always best shared. As I say, I think it's slightly better perhaps than in other parts of the world. But 
your question is sort of how do we grip it up more in the Pacific. First thing to say is that last year there is a, a, a centre that was set up in uh, Vanuatu in Port Vila, a Pacific fusion centre. Uh, I don't want to be too critical, except I think the name is a bit misleading. It's not, for example, like the uh, International Fusion Centre in Singapore at Changi Naval Base, where that really is uh, a centre that fuses a lot of maritime data um, to inform maritime operations. As far as I can see, the, the fusion centre in Vila, and it's got a website, you can look at it, is really more a sort of strategic assessment centre. It produces products that might come out of one of our intelligence agencies. It's open source products, but while it's called a fusion centre, it's perhaps a bit misleading. But you know, your question of how we can improve, I suppose, advanced maritime domain awareness in the Pacific. Well, look, a couple of just thoughts on that perhaps. One is I think in my experience in, in um, travelling widely through the region, there's often not a single point of contact in maritime agencies uh, on, on maritime security and, you know, your more broader maritime domain awareness. So I think... One thing that the islands could do would be to nominate a, a single point of contact and those single point of contacts on maritime security should, I believe, um, have regular dialogues um, with a whole range of maritime uh, actors on, on maritime domain awareness so they get a sort of shared understanding uh, of priorities. I also think there's not a lot of formal sort of agreements, MOUs and so forth on maritime information sharing in the, in the Pacific. So I think trying to get a common operating picture, as it were, through uh, developing um, more formal agreements, I, I, I think would be quite useful. And, you know, the, that fusion centre, as I said, that's based in Singapore, may be one model that they the Pacific um, could look at. Look, the other thing too, I've noticed that in the Pacific, while they've produced in the last few years, Jen, a, a range of national security strategies, I, I can stand corrected, but I don't think any Pacific Island country has produced a maritime security strategy. Now, Australia probably shouldn't get too smug about this because, you know, we only produced a civil maritime security strategy for the very first time that was released a few months ago. But I do think in answer to your question of how the Pacific could uh, be stronger in identifying maritime domain awareness priorities. I think they, if, if they produce their own broader maritime security strategies. And I guess the last point I'd make here um, to respond to your question would be the role of donors. I think, you know, if, if the Pacific's going to have an effective maritime domain awareness system, then, you know, donors need to coordinate to make sure that the priorities and preferences of the islands are taken into account. Uh, we've talked a lot now about the nature of the maritime security challenges, uh, smaller security challenges in the Pacific, and the concept of maritime domain awareness to understand what's actually happening on the water in a near real-time fashion. A point that interests me is I note that in the recent RIMPAC exercises, the commander of the Third Fleet talked about the need for some sort of regional security framework 
And he referenced some of the examples around the world, uh, one that I'm quite familiar with being the combined maritime forces in Bahrain, something that Australia has had extensive experience in. Do you see in achieving shared maritime domain awareness and being able to respond to some of those threats a role for a new regional security framework, something similar to the combined maritime forces? Look, I think where the gap is, Jen, at the moment is there doesn't appear to be any effective platform to address broader, you know, geopolitical security risks in the Pacific. I mean, the Pacific Island Forum has got a um, a subcommittee that looks at um, security issues, including maritime security issues. It is a sort of a sub-working group, I suppose, a committee of the Pacific Island Forum, which is the main regional body. But um, there's no mechanism, for example, like the ASEAN Regional Forum that can negotiate with partners on security issues. So maybe the answer to your question is, you know, do we need a new regional security framework, I think we need to try and see if we can strengthen in some way that Pacific Island Forum subcommittee. Um, It could be expanded, the membership of it, or as I say, you know, we could look at models like the ASEAN Regional Forum to provide opportunities for the island states to collectively engage with Uh, partners on security matters. So, look, rather than invent something new, uh, I think what I'm suggesting perhaps in the first instance would be to think about that um, subcommittee of the Pacific Island Forum that deals with security, including maritime security, um, to be strengthened, uh, to be gripped up a bit more. And alternatively, if we wanted to go to something new, yes, we could create a forum in the Pacific, something like that ASEAN regional forum. Anthony, the recently signed security pact between China and the Solomon Islands was the event that jolted Pacific maritime security into the general public's conscious during the recent federal election. What's your take on the impact of this agreement on maritime security in the Pacific? Oh, there's no question, uh, Ken, that the Solomon's um, security agreement um, with China is a significant uh, setback for Australia and the region. And to me, it's extraordinary as a frequent visitor to uh, Solomon's that um, the country has gone um, in three years from being the strongest supporter of Taiwan in the Pacific to now being China's uh, most compliant Pacific partner. So what did I think of it? Look, in terms of um, broader security and maritime security, um, the most worrying dimension to me was the extraterritorial dimension of the agreement because it provides that if China believes that its interests, whether it be in infrastructure or industries or projects in the Solomons is threatened, it has unilaterally the right to send in its forces. So I think that's the the part of the security agreement that worries me the most, that this extraterritorial 
dimension where it talks about, as I say, you know, being able to protect the um, Chinese personnel and projects in the Solomon Islands. And similarly, there was a subsequent maritime security agreement between Solomons and China that the Australian newspaper got hold of that said that um, China is going to provide uh, ports, maritime infrastructure, submarine cables uh, to the Solomons. And if you combine that with this preferential extraterritoriality dimension to the security agreement, then again, it's a worry because um, it means that um, the Chinese can use these agreements to come in um, and send in their security forces. But look, in terms of the impact on not just the islands, but it's also a big worry to Australia because there's no doubt, I think, that a Chinese potential naval facility in the Solomons would mean potentially the sort of harassment operations uh, that we've seen with Chinese fishing boats um, in the South China Sea and that we see in Southeast Asia. But more importantly, I think the fact that, um, you know, with Australia proposing to acquire nuclear-powered submarines, a base, a Chinese base in the Solomons would give enormous uh, increased options uh, for China to complicate, you know, our operations from the foreshadowed East Coast submarine base in Australia. So I think the bottom line really is if, if there were naval facilities built as part of this agreement, it would allow China to complicate the deployment of Australian missile-armed submarines before they would get anywhere near the theatre of operations in the North Pacific. I'm obviously thinking here of a Taiwan contingency. So all in all, to answer your question, is it a setback? Absolutely. Look, you mentioned about the potential for naval facilities given the agreement between China and the Solomon Islands. How realistic do you think an increase in military bases in the Pacific is in the near term? Well, if we think about uh, the United States for the moment, the United States recently committed to an increased presence in the Pacific, not just the North Pacific, obviously the centre of US uh, attention in the region is the North Pacific, Micronesia rather than the South Pacific. There's no evidence that I could find in in, um, the Vice President's recent statement at the Pacific Islands Forum that the United States intends to build more military bases in the Pacific. Palau, by the way, has offered uh, the United States to to develop uh, military infrastructure and it's unclear to me where that offer has gone In terms of Australia and military bases, at the moment, uh, as you know, we're developing the uh, uh, Manus Island naval base um, with cooperation with the United States. It's very slow. In the longer term, as I say, I think if China were to succeed in inking more agreements uh, with the islands like uh, the Solomons, I have no doubt that China in the longer run would absolutely love to have um, military uh, bases. Uh, Normally the way that the Chinese operate though is that they develop um, what's called dual use facilities, you know, civil airfields, uh, civil ports and so forth, and then later inject, that's what we've seen in in places uh, in in Africa and so forth, later inject military uh, assets. So I'm not predicting a base race 
But there's no doubt in the longer term, I think China and indeed I think the United States will see its its own interests in, in building its um, in military infrastructure, particularly I think in the South Pacific. Moving slightly away from the security agreement between China and the Solomons and basing in the Pacific, I really enjoyed your paper released in June this year on options for safeguarding undersea critical infrastructure, Australia and Indo-Pacific submarine cables. How reliant is Australia on undersea critical infrastructure in the Pacific and what are some of its vulnerabilities? Well, of course, um, Australia itself obviously relies on um, undersea uh, communications cables and, you know, the principal uh, landing points for those are in Sydney and Perth in Australia. But look, the Pacific is also dependent on um, undersea data uh, communications cables. Um, And we saw that in January this year, the dramatic impact when one of these cables is cut uh, in Tonga, where there was that underwater um, volcanic eruption that absolutely shattered Tonga's internet infrastructure, it took something like five weeks to fix. Um, and a number of the Pacific Islands um, are dependent, like Tonga, on a single cable coming in on a, from a branch line. So, yes, the Pacific is increasingly dependent on um, submarine uh, cables, um, like the rest of the world, for their um, internet connections. And you've kindly referred to my paper that came out um, in June um, on how we protect cables. And I think Australia can work with the Pacific a lot more on, you know, looking at the risks and hazards around interrupting cables, um, particularly around strengthening cable repair response capabilities. I think we can be doing more exercises, um, tabletop and and direct exercises that would involve uh, navies in uh, planning for cable breaks, particularly cable breaks that uh, happen uh, simultaneously and where there's no redundancy. So I think we can grip up a lot more um, cable resilience. Now, you know, linking it to the Pacific, if I could coin a term, cable diplomacy, Australia must be very proactive in, I think, in heading off Chinese offers of submarine cables and China is, and I referred to earlier, the the new agreement that um, China's signed with the Solomons provides that they will um, be a source of uh, submarine cables to the Solomons if they so wish. So, I think Australia, to answer your question, how reliant, I think we should be ensuring that uh, the Pacific um, turn to Australia and our partners um, to provide their uh, subsea communications cables. I'll just add one point here, and, and it's not directly to the relevant to the Pacific at the moment, but Australia is in, in two years is going to launch a massive underwater cable to Singapore from Darwin. Now, that is unlike what we've just been talking about, a data communications cable. It's going to be an electricity cable from a gigantic solar farm in the Northern Territory. So reverting to your comment about the Pacific and cables, I think don't just think submarine uh, data cables. I think in, in the future we're likely to see electricity cables as well. And that is, again, going to require... Australia working with partners to ensure the resilience of of any undersea electricity cables that may be operating in the islands. 
You mentioned the value of exercises and tabletop exercises to deal with some of the potential vulnerabilities of undersea infrastructure. Do you think there's any other things that Australia can do or work with in the Pacific to mitigate some of these vulnerabilities to undersea cables? Well, Australia is um, probably regarded in terms of legislation, uh, Jen, having the gold standard. We definitely have got a very robust cable protection legal regime. And while while all countries' uh, geographic circumstances are different, I definitely think, for example, Australia can assist the islands in developing legal uh, frameworks, legal uh, regimes around cable resilience. I think also we need to think more, as I've already said, about how we can strengthen cable repair capabilities into the Pacific. Look, it might even mean Australia leasing, I'm not suggesting we buy, but maybe leasing some cable repair ships in case uh, we see what happened in January in Tonga, repeated in other island uh, countries. You know, Australia is a member of organisations like the Quad, the Pacific Island Forum, uh, and so forth. So in these multilateral forums, I think we can share intelligence, share information, you know, about uh, cable uh, vulnerabilities. So, yes, I think just elevating... um, the importance of, um, you know, underwater critical infrastructure. And just reverting to your maritime domain awareness question earlier, Jen, obviously maritime domain awareness is not just about what happens now on the surface, if you see what I mean. It's also now got an underwater dimension and obviously, um, you know, subsea critical infrastructure should be incorporated into any maritime domain awareness uh, frameworks and or initiatives in the Pacific. At the beginning of the podcast, you talked about uh, some of the breadth of the security challenges within the Pacific, and you mentioned uh, illegal, unreported, and unregulated fishing. How extensive is this challenge, and what is being done to address it in the Pacific? Well, the Pacific, as I'm sure most listeners would be aware, is, you know, produces something like over half of the global tuna production. So it's worth, you know, $2.5 billion for the Pacific Islands. So it's a critical resource for the Pacific. And look, the Pacific, like other areas of of the world, is not immune from uh, so-called IUU uh, fishing. But I have to say that there's some good news here. I mean, the Pacific is probably, I'd argue, almost the gold standard when it comes to dealing with the problem of um, uh, IUU fishing. And by the way, in the Pacific, it's not the I, it's not the illegal part, it's really the unreported the second U, if you see what I mean, part of the IUU problem. It's really unreported. There's almost no illegal fishing in the sense of people being caught fishing without a licence in the Pacific. It's it's mainly unregulated. Now, your question of, well, how has the Pacific gone about it? An enormous range of monitoring, control and surveillance tools, everything from legal regimes to acting as a a regional body when it comes to fishing negotiations, to insisting on observers, fishing observers on, on distant water fishing boats. And I wouldn't obviously ignore the important role of physical assets of which Australia, through our aerial patrols, through the donation of our patrol boat, uh, through our new Guardian class. So physical assets, um, legal regimes, 
the role of the Fisheries Surveillance Centre in uh, in Honiara uh, as, a, as a regional resource to monitor uh, foreign fishing in, in, in the region. So it's been a combination. Um, and as I say, the good news is that the Pacific, just to provide some figures, they did a study that was released in December, the Foreign Fisheries Agency last year, and it updated uh, an earlier study they did on, on your question about the quantum of uh, illegal IUU fishing. It's now costing the Pacific $333 million, that's US dollars. But the good news is from five years ago, that's gone down dramatically when a similar study that was done uh, said the, the cost was $616 million. So there have been dramatic advances. It's not to say the problem's gone away, but um, the Pacific, I, I believe, is probably has more to offer other regions of the world in terms of trying to tackle this really wicked problem of, of, of IU fishing. And as I say, it's a combination of, of physical assets, legal tools, but most importantly, I think, the region acting as a region in trying to uh, respond to uh, the challenges of IU. Well, that's unfortunately where we're going to have to leave it for today. Dr. Anthony Bergen, thank you for joining us for our inaugural Saltwater Strategist podcast and providing a really interesting overview of the complex and varied maritime security challenges facing the Pacific region. I certainly look forward to reading more from you on this topic. Thanks very much, Jen. And um, it's pretty clear, I think, that maritime security is going to dominate the broader security agenda in the Pacific Island countries for many, many years. Our guest today on The Saltwater Strategist was Dr. Anthony Bergen, a senior fellow with the Australian Strategic Policy Institute. Anthony is a writer and commentator on a wide range of national security and maritime issues, including maritime security, oceans policy, disaster resilience, and South Pacific. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider rating, reviewing, and following The Saltwater Strategist wherever you get your podcasts. You can find out more on our website, navalinstitute.com.au, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or sign up to our weekly newsletter via our website. A big thank you to our podcast sponsor, BAE Systems, whose support is vital to bringing you these timely and important discussions on maritime security in the Pacific. I'm Jen Parker. Thanks for listening.